0: Welcome to this episode of the BizVal Podcast, another international show. The guest on this show is Jeff Erickson, and he runs the partnership side of Forecaster. And he has done a lot of really cool stuff, and I'm very excited to engage with him and actually learn... Well, all about that business, uh, but Jeff, also all about the angel investing you've done. I mean, it's a pretty pretty impressive story. So welcome to the show, and thank you for making time for this all the way from Salt Lake City in Utah.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it.
0: So Jeff, I had a look at your LinkedIn. It looks like sports are a pretty big part of your life. So obviously, I'm in South Africa, and we basically live, breathe, and eat sport. I'm sure you, you may not even know what the Rugby World Cup is. Stop me if you do. But uh, South Africa has just become the world champions, uh, which is very exciting for us. I, I, I mean, does that news make its way to the US at all? <laughs> Probably not.
1: Congratulations! That's that's awesome. That's actually the first time I've heard it. But there we um, go. I, no, I know our rugby fans here in the US. Um, it's just not something that I grew up with.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the closest you'd have is is obviously NFL. Yes. Uh, which is your pick of the US sports? Is it NFL? I think that was your LinkedIn. Profile pick, if I'm not wrong. Everybody
1: loves the NFL. It's it's uh, gaining popularity more and more, it seems like. But um, I love college football. That's probably my favorite. We cheer for the University of Utah, the running Utes, out here in Salt Lake City. And we just had ESPN College Game Day out here last week. And so uh, my family and I, we, we were able to go to that, which was really fun.
0: Sounds fantastic. It's amazing how sport is just something that humans just love across the world, even if the sport is different. Yeah. So I guess that brings me to my first question, which is, you know, do you think there are any useful overlaps between business strategy and sport? Because I've always felt that a lot of the things you learn on the field and a lot of the ways that a, a team is managed, there's a lot of overlap with how business is run. But I'm very keen to get your thoughts on this.
1: Oh, for sure. Um, and if you look at it, the very, the bottom level of players and how that translates into whether it's investing or entrepreneurship, Um, athletes in general seem to make great entrepreneurs. Um, One, because you've got to have this grit. As an athlete, you have this mentality that is grit, setting goals, going for it, um, and, and big goals. And so athletes can make great entrepreneurs in that sense. I think the other thing that you see is that, especially when you come to professional sports, athletes tend to have you know, the money to invest as whether they're angel investors or to participate in funds. But the other cool thing is that that especially if they're kind of have that celebrity behind them, they can make a difference for the companies that they invest in. So I think you're actually seeing a lot more celebrities or celebrity um, athletes getting into investing because they can have an impact on the companies that they invest in. So that's one way I think that you, know, you see sports and at least the startup world kind of uh, converging there.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously most sports, you have a relatively short career. I think something like golf is probably one of the, the, the few exceptions. So it makes sense. You know, when your body is uh, tired or too old, it's time to go and do something else. I think for me, the overlap is also just in general, you know, the way a team is managed the strategy behind it. It depends on the sport, obviously. I don't know a lot about NFL, but I think I know enough that uh, there's a lot of strategy that goes into that. I mean, it's basically chess, but with humans. Uh, rugby is very similar, so I think there's a good overlap there with how businesses are, are put together and run. The role that the coach plays, you know, the sort of architecture behind the thing. It's quite interesting to overlap.
1: Well, not only that, but I mean, the business of sports is definitely a business. That too. Um, I mean, if you, if you look at college football, we were just talking about college, you know, um, American football there was a, there's one conference in particular that basically disintegrated this past year because of different sponsorship rights and the TV broadcasting rights and things like that so the whole business behind sports is a big deal and you do have to kind of run sports teams at a certain level like a business
0: absolutely so, I think let's move off the field, as exciting as it is, and certainly as a South African at the moment, it's pretty much just sport, 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 because we are participating in two World Cups, or well, we just won one of them, and the other is the Cricket World Cup, which again is probably your baseball, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Um, I'd say that's the closest comparison. Anyway, moving on from sport. So, before we move on to Forecaster, which is the business that you're involved in, we need to learn a little bit about your background, you know, just in building businesses, and, and I think one of the things I picked up is you built a pretty big consumer goods company, it sounds like it was basically from zero to over $40 million in annual revenue. That's a big business. Quite keen to just spend a few minutes on that, you know, the backstory, what did this business do?
1: Yeah, this was interesting because I had come out of a tech startup and I went off and, and started another company with some friends while my wife had a hobby that she was working on. And it turned into a business that was far better than what, you know, I was kind of pursuing at the time. Um, this became what's called Uppercase Living was the company. And I helped her raise some capital and we started growing that business. It grew very rapidly, like you said, from the, you know, being in our basement to, you know, doing $40 million of, of sales um, a year. So that was an interesting pivot that I made, it was in the consumer product space. And honestly, it's a it's a company that wouldn't exist without investors. We had some investors early stage come in and get us to the point where we could scale the business. It cash flowed pretty quickly and so we were able to run that um, and and not seek additional investment. Uh, A lot of lessons learned through that whole process. I ended up helping run that company for about 10 years. We sold it to a private equity group, and um, they had me stay on for three years as the CEO there. Um, and yeah, like I said, a lot of lessons learned. But ultimately, I did want to get back into kind of the tech startup space, and uh, so I, you know, after after I took a little bit of a break after that, um, I ended up um, joining Carta, which is a a company that serves a lot of startups. Uh, particularly in the US, uh, helping them manage their cap tables.
0: So Jeff, is that business still going today or is that something that is subsequently, you know, was it a pandemic casualty as so many businesses unfortunately were?
1: So yeah, unfortunate story here is that when we sold this company to the private equity group, they actually had 11 other companies. We were a smaller, you know, one of their portfolio companies. And for the first year, it went great and they, you know, things were going well, we were growing and uh, things were positive. Over the next two years, they they started to pull capital from some of their own, other portfolio companies, including ours, to fund some of their other businesses that were struggling. And ultimately, this private equity group took 11 companies into bankruptcy. And I had left by then, but uh, unfortunate ending for all of the companies that uh, were part of that that uh, private equity group.
0: Story as old as time, private equity buys a business and runs it into the ground. Man, it happens often, so it's, uh, it's sad.
1: Yeah. yeah, it was not a fun fun three years, that's for sure, when they, they had me stay on, so.
0: No, I can't believe it. It's just, it's ongoing rolling of the dice, often lots of debt. I don't know if that was the case here, but that's typical as well. I mean, private equity uh, <laughs> investors are very well known for running retailers specifically into the ground. They're very, very, mm-hmm. very skilled at that. Anyway, I think let's move on from there before I uh, you know, get you saying too many awkward things about people you might know. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, <laughs> Ge- you. Jeff, your background is very much in sales. Uh, and I wonder if that's actually part of why you find angel investing so interesting, because obviously these early stage, high growth companies, very sales focused. I mean, all companies obviously are sales focused, yeah. but hopefully you understand what I mean by that and agree with me that in that early stage, it's entirely about getting product to market as quickly and as broadly as possible. Now, is that part of why you like angel investing? Or is that really just a coincidence?
1: I, I think there's a little bit of both. I think you do see that, especially early on as an angel investor, you're betting on, you know, the founder, and that founder typically has to have some type of, you know be able to build some confidence in you as an investor, that they one they have a solution to fix a, a problem that's significant, but two, that they can sell it. And so a lot, you know, early on, most of these companies are going to be founder-led sales, and you've got to have that confidence in the in the leader, the uh, founder. So I think there are some correlations there that, you know, you, you do want to see a founder that knows how to sell their corporate their product. If they can't sell it, um, it's going to be hard for others to sell it um, as the solution. And so I, I think there are some definite ties there. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily what I thought of when going into into uh, angel investing, but definitely some synergies.
0: Interesting. So I've seen your portfolio, at least uh, some of the names on LinkedIn. I don't know if that, per- if that uh, portfolio is perfectly up to date, but how do you manage in practice to keep track of so many angel investments and, dare I ask, to not have a scenario like that private equity company, um, you know, where it kind of all falls down? Obviously, this is different. You know, I imagine you have relatively smaller stakes across a broader range of investments. How do you think about this and, and is it really a case of of treating each one like a call option? In other words, if one or two of them do really well it kind of makes up for everything. I mean, people also refer to that as power law. That's something that comes along often when you learn about venture capital, angel investing. And for those who haven't heard that term before, again, it just means, you know, if there's a basket of 10 companies, you need two of them to do extremely well and it will make up for the other eight, even if they fail to zero, if two of them do incredibly well or even one of them does extremely well, you come out with a very interesting return. So, you know, is that kind of the approach you take and how do you keep track of all these different angel investments?
1: Yeah, Great questions. Uh, First off, in terms of, of keeping track of them, I've got about 30 plus, maybe 35 different angel investments. Um, And so keeping track of it, it's always nice to have these companies on Carta um, because it's an easy way to issue the shares and I'd be able to log in and see where, you know, all of my shares are. Um, that's an easy way, but not all companies are using Carta, and so you know, you have to keep track of them just in different folders and and whatever. In terms of the power law, I would say that's definitely something you, you that a different definitely an aspect of angel investing. The thing I really love about angel investing though is that you're not necessarily tied to you know the restrictions of a venture capital fund as an investor. So if I see an opportunity that might not be a power law opportunity, you know maybe it's not going to be a 100x opportunity. As an angel investor, I can make a decision and say, okay, this might be a 5x return in a short you know, time frame. That's very different than a venture capital firm. Where they would look at, great, now we have, you know, if this is only a three year um, time frame before this company gets acquired, that's not the most appealing investment for a venture capital firm. That could be a very appealing investment for me as an angel investor, because now I've got, a, you know, some more liquidity, returns faster, um, and I can then look to deploy that, that capital because it's, it's my own own money, so I think there's some differences between venture capital and the power law there and angel investing. At the same time, you do have to have kind of that power law dynamic um, if you're going to take some pretty risky bets. Because there's going to be a lot of these, you know, companies that fail. I've already seen, you know, is it several? I mean, maybe four or five, I guess, that have, have probably failed more, more or less. And something's got to make up for that, right? So you you want to see a a real winner that's like, you know, that 10 to 50x your investment pay off. And that usually takes time, which, you know, you kind of have to be patient as well.
0: And the way that venture capital world works in the U.S. is is so different to how it is in so many other countries. And unfortunately, in South Africa as well, we just don't have that sort of cap table culture, for want of a better description, where there can be these rounds upon rounds of investment, you know, and people can actually access money to innovate. And that's part of why the US economy is as exciting as it is in my opinion. And I mean, is it true to say that in the US, you know, failing at a startup, it's not, you know, your name is not mud thereafter. Obviously it's not ideal, but it's kind of a, it's kind of part of the process, you know, whereas I think in South Africa and in a lot of countries, you really get one shot to go out they raise money, have an idea. If that one goes wrong, you know, that's pretty much it.
1: Yeah, I think there's a very different mentality in the US in, in the venture capital space. Um, I mean I look at at the founder of Forecaster, for example, um, Stephen Steven Plapper. His first company, he took it through Techstars, and you know, it ultimately he raised some capital. It ultimately didn't end up panning out. And he now had the experience as a founder and learned a ton. I mean, if you ask Steven or, or any founder that's been through it, uh, they have learned so much on that first startup and there's, there's so much value in that. And I think that's what venture capital firms see and why a lot of times the venture capital firms will look at the founder and say, you know, do they have experience? Have they been through this before? Have they raised capital? Even if the venture failed, uh, that experience becomes extremely valuable. So I, th- I think there is that mentality that you know second time third time multi-time founders have an advantage. Um, your your first go you learn so much and that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to fail but that's part of the game as well. Um, you know I mean obviously as an investor you don't want to see enterprises fail but you are kind of betting on good founders and the founders you know you're kind of. Betting on them to be able to know when to pivot. Um, there's great stories of founders that failed, and the way that they they approach things with their investors um, is a real positive. You know, and investors will come back and say, "We love working with this founder. We, you know, this particular one didn't work, but we think the next one has a good shot." So I think there definitely is a, def- a different mentality.
0: Yeah, that's part of why that ecosystem works, and it's very special. Uh, I think it's a function of the amount of liquidity in the U.S. market. Maybe, oh, you know, let me ask you this: in terms of yeah. macroeconomics, and that's something I follow a lot, and I follow a lot of listed companies. I mean, interest rates are obviously a lot higher than they have been. Yields are a lot higher than they they have been recently. Have you seen that have an impact on the angel space in terms of availability of investment, liquidity, that kind of thing? or are things kind of carrying on as they were? Obviously the pandemic was like peak madness in terms of money was literally free. Uh, so I would imagine it's come down yeah. since then. It's keen to get your views sort of from on the ground.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely had an impact. Uh, you've seen investment slow, um, because interest rates are higher. I mean, especially in the venture capital space and in the later stage investing, um, you know, so you've seen the macroeconomics definitely impact investing at all levels. I will say that the earlier stage investments have probably been less susceptible to some of the macro economic trends. And, you know, with that said, you're also looking at a 10-year time horizon typically on an early stage investment. And just because you're investing now doesn't necessarily... You know, I mean, the IPO market or other things could be very different, you know, seven to 10 years out. And so I think investors are, in general, more willing willing to you know, take those risks earlier on. Um, whereas if I'm investing in a company that is later stage and the IPO markets have kind of dried up, um, you know, that impacts my, my willingness to kind of go in on something like that. So I think that has definitely impacted things. One of the other impacts you do see is that a lot of angel investors, they are tied to, you know, the the capital markets in general. And so if liquidity is is drying up and you're waiting for, you know, IPO exits or you know different things like that, then that that can impact the available funds. At the same time, acquisitions, you know, don't necessarily always slow down in these times. They can pick up. And so if you do have liquidity events through that, then you know, a lot of times angel investors will see this as a good time to invest early stage and to redeploy some of that capital. So it's an interesting game. And again, like I said, I I don't think the earlier stage um, investing has been impacted as much as later stage right now
0: in this environment. A lot of it comes down to the components of that valuation, right? Very early, it's all about the entrepreneur and an idea. And a total addressable market and an eventual conversion rate and a whole lot of assumptions all of which will be wrong but there's this kind of direction of okay you know where will this end up whereas obviously later on it's more about the actual cash flows that are happening there and then and i think at that point there's also a game of you know are we exiting in three four years time and then to your point you know you have much more visibility on what the ipo market looks like so if the ipo market is is not hot at all then, you know, it's much harder to justify those kind of late-stage investments, whereas early-stage keeps coming through. I hadn't actually thought about that before this chat, and that's quite interesting. So, that's quite nice to hear that on the ground. I can understand from a financial perspective why that's probably happening. So, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. I want to move on to a company in your list of angel investments that caught my eye, um, just because I think it's interesting. And, you know, when it comes to angel and venture capital and everything else, people always think it's only tech. And often it is only tech, to be honest with you. It's a typical sort of as a service company, as you know. You've got a snowboard Mm -hmm. company in your list of uh, angel investments. (laughs) I guess the, I just thought that was really interesting. And I guess the point is, you know, anything can be fast growing. It doesn't have to just be a tech platform. So do you actively look for things that are not just tech or was this kind of a by accident?
1: Yeah, part of it is, I mean, I knew the founder um, I know the founder. They're actually raising another round right now. It's called Kemper Snowboards, and really cool brand and uh, kind of resurrected an old school snowboard brand. Um, one of the, one of the perks of that investment was I actually got a snowboard, and so there's an immediate return on investment. Um, not that that's you know what you're looking for, but you know consumer products in general are tough to raise capital for. Um, you kind of have to have this established, you know, brand or something that's going to to really propel sales um, because it doesn't have that natural recurring revenue stream built in typically. So consumer products are hard. Um, with that said, angel investors again are very different from a venture capital firm, where I would be okay if you know I get into a consumer products company and they Double my money in one year, or they, you know, do a three to five x return in five years. Um, that's still a good win for for me as an angel investor. If you're playing strictly the power law, that's a you know that's an at bat that you just gave up basically, right? So that's why you do see a lot of the the VCs. They do have a thesis that's very recurring revenue driven. And there's there's wisdom in that because I mean that's where you can drive huge opportunities. Consumer products, yes, they can be huge opportunities if you you know get in on the right ones. Uh, but it takes a ton of capital, um, a lot of inventory. You know, there's different dynamics behind uh, direct to consumer companies, um, and they're just not as appealing to most venture capital firms in in general, or venture investors. So. Yeah, you know, that's kind of the dynamic there. I've invested in other other uh, consumer product companies as well, um, but again, I'm they're kind of the exception to the rule. If especially if you're looking at kind of the power law of huge potential companies,
0: so that's kind of my take on it, anyway. Yeah, very nice. I enjoyed that. Okay, so let's move on to Forecaster. You know, there are so many ways that you could be spending your time, and Forecaster clearly excites you and interests you because that seems to be where you spend the bulk of your time. I, I don't know if it's correct to call that your day job, but it kind of sounds like it is. Why is that wise forecaster the one that you are so involved in?
1: A great question. So, one of the things that I got when I, I was working at Carta, uh, Carta, I joined fairly early. They are about 200 employees or so, and saw this company that was focused on selling into startup companies and helping them manage their cap tables, taking that out of spreadsheets and into software. Um, I saw the playbook there. And Carta went from you know, 200 employees over a four, four and a half year period to about 1,800 employees, um, an $8 billion valuation at the time I left. And you know I saw how this playbook worked. Um, it was actually when I was at Carta that I met the founders of, of Forecaster. And the thing that was really interesting was they were doing something very similar to what Carta was doing in the cap table space with financial models. So two areas that founders typically struggle with are managing their equity and figuring out their financial model. Most founders, that's not a core competency and they struggle with that. So Forecaster has made it so financial modeling is easy for founders. We've taken that out of spreadsheets, and into a software platform that's easier for founders to use. This becomes helpful for the founders because now they can tell the financial story behind their company, which is really powerful if they're seeking investment. They have to know the financial story of their company and how the company makes money. This became really apparent, and as I started talking to the, the founders, um, they eventually you know, asked me, they said, We're getting some real traction on our partnership side. We need somebody to come in and, and run that. Um, would you have any interest? And I saw so many similarities with Carta that it became a no brainer. So I joined this company very early on and uh, we continue to, to grow the company. It's been a fun company to be a part of, puts me right in the middle of the startup ecosystem, working with, you know, VCs and founders. Um, but there's a tremendous potential here. Uh, with Forecaster. So very excited about that.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting. So I always, you know, whenever I meet people and they do interesting things, I always think of it like a Venn diagram. You know, what they are doing now is always the intersection of different skills and experiences come together. You know, that's certainly been my experience with uh, the Finance Ghost, with my involvement with BizVol, with almost everything I'm involved in. At the end of the day, your whole life is a set of experiences and skills, and you sit at the middle of those. And if you can figure out that intersection, I think that's true happiness in a career that's when you get to build something really cool you know it's when you're kind of sitting on the side of that and you're literally just earning a salary not really doing something meaningful to you that's uh that's that's the other world you know that's the world that so many leave behind to go and become founders and i think for you the center of your venn diagram is exactly as you've just described it now and given you've done so many angel investments and you know, you've exited your own company, you've been on the wrong end of private equity and seen what happens there, it puts you in a really good position, I guess, to understand how to make that link. Because when I looked at Forecaster, the thing that's, that really stuck out to me, which you've touched on straight away, unsurprisingly, is kind of linking the power of financial information to actually raising capital. So it's not a compliance thing. This is not accounting software designed to make sure that your taxes are correct. You know, this is stuff to... Actually, help you raise money, have a conversation with a founder, and show or an investor rather, and show your numbers. Right?
1: Correct. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing is that most investors they speak a different language than founders. They speak the language of finance. So when they start throwing out terms like ROI and you know your ARR and MRR um, churn rates, stuff like that, this is a different language for most investors that are running a company, right? But, in, but founders have to understand the language of finance and they have to talk the language of finance when they're talking to investors because that's what's going to resonate. So Forecaster helps the founders tell their story in that language that investors understand and want to, to know about you know, how this company makes money. So, yeah, very directly Um, correlated with raising capital, but also, you know, as founders figure out how to use their financial model, they end up being better founders because they can start to make strategic decisions based on, you know, the economics of the business. Um, So it becomes a very powerful tool for entrepreneurs in general.
0: So you really touched on this a little bit in terms of tips, uh, you know, indirectly for people trying to raise money as founders, you know, speak the language of finance, I think is a fantastic tip. Uh, any others? What's your, you know, as we bring this podcast to a close, the time has gone very quickly, which is always the sign of a great show. What is your best tip for a founder looking to raise capital? What, what would you say is the difference between success and failure? Okay. I know it's difficult to come down to just one.
1: You know, yeah, that is hard to come down to one. One, I, I do caution all of the companies that I uh, work with is to make sure you have a good startup attorney, so your startup attorney is experienced, they know you know how to structure around, what to look for, what's normal, what's not. Having that person on your side is very valuable for you, but it's also valuable for your investors because an inexperienced attorney is gonna cost them money because they're gonna to have to go back and forth negotiating points that you really shouldn't have to negotiate. And so having an experienced startup attorney is beneficial for you as a founder and for the investors on the other side. So keep that in mind. Um, and then the the other thing that I just hit on briefly is, as a founder, you have to know your customers. Um, go out and talk to your customers, become passionate about customer experience and what the customer's pain points are, and make sure you're solving those pain points. That's the sign of a good founder that will go out there and it in, is in- yeah, are on the front line talking to customers. Um, so th- those are a couple of things that, that I've seen, um, you know, good companies do.
0: Really, really interesting. And again, I'll comment there that it just shows how different the U.S. ecosystem is to a lot of other countries, because, you know, to your point, one of the most important things in raising money is getting the structuring right. And there are a lot of sort of common do's and don'ts in how to structure those different rounds, what the different investor rights are at different levels in the sharehold or the cap table. You know again in a country like south africa which you might find interesting like that advice would never come up i can tell you now if you went and spoke to a hundred south mm-hmm. african investors they would never say you know well first and foremost make sure you're good you have a good startup lawyer so and, and that's just because the deals here are a lot more bespoke there's not as many hard and fast rules we don't have this kind of deep understanding of a series a series b series c you know we learn this stuff by reading about it overseas and we there are examples in south africa of course there are but it's not that common. You know. So you'd struggle to probably find a really good startup lawyer here. I mean, they are they are here, but there's a handful of them who have done a proper amount of deals of this nature. So, so for me, it just shows the level of the ecosystem in the US and how it drives innovation. Uh, in case it's not obvious, there should be some jealousy coming through in my voice here because I think it's fantastic. And it's a big part of why the US economy is the powerhouse that it is. I wish, truly wish for South Africa that we could have you know anything close to the level of venture capital ecosystem that you have there. Uh, it's a real, it's a real blessing, truly.
1: Well, honestly, it starts with what you're doing. It's the education, and you'll you'll see as angel investors get more and more, um, you know, familiar with how investments do and how they work. Um, you're going to see those things pop up where they want good startup attorneys because they're going to structure them right. And the angel investors are going to realize that if they go in and they're too predatory at the front end, they're going to kind of kill their own deals or shoot themselves in the foot because they're not going to be able to raise additional rounds of capital when they need it. And so they're they're limiting the growth of those those opportunities. And those are all things that every startup ecosystem from the ground up has to go through and and learn and build on top of. So, so yeah, that's very insightful. And... Uh, yeah, you know, appreciate you sharing that with me.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate all the insights as well. I think we're out of time, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for that time. Uh, in terms of Forecaster, maybe just a last question: You know, international—is that the focus? Is it very much U.S. clients? Do you have do you have clients all around the world? And for those who do want to learn more about the tool, uh, where should they find it? Yeah, you
1: can you, you can always follow me on LinkedIn. So go to Jeff Erickson. I'm with Forecaster. Forecaster is F O R E C A S T R dot and you can always go there. Um, actually, if you'll you'll mention that you came through Bizval, um, Forecast will give you a free demo and you know give you a discount as well. But yes, it's very international. Um, nice thing about financial modeling is that you know it doesn't matter what currency or what the regulations are; you can build it all into the model. And it still becomes a very valuable tool, you know, regardless of any of that stuff. So so yeah, find us at, at forecaster.co and um, would love to run you through a demo if it sounds like it'd be something, you know, helpful.
0: Fantastic, Jeff. Thank you so very much. And last uh, last comment from me. I you know, with Forecaster, just the spelling. Of course it's missing a vowel, right? Because it's just can't possibly be a startup if it has all its vowels. It's like the number one sign <laughs> of a startup versus a mature company. Can't have too many vowels, or capital letters. We went the non-capital letter route, but you dropped a vowel. So there we have it. Ah, uh, gotcha. Uh, anyway, Jeff, thank you so much for your time and uh, all the best with everything you're busy with. And thank you for sharing your insights with the BizVal audience. Well, thank
1: you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye.